What evidence do we have for the resurrection? This is a kind of a hip question today for contemporary cultured despisers of the Church's claims. It's a question that has exercised me personally since I encountered St. John Chrysostom's homily, famous homily about St. Peter uh, when I was a senior in college, and eventually this is how I ended up with the name Peter, because it's a question of faith. We know that. The evidence uh, isn't uh, a slam dunk, as it were. Uh, we need to have this gift of faith in order to see that the resurrection is true. Uh, but what does this mean? How do we understand all of this? Because some Christians throughout history, and perhaps even more prominently today, would go so far as to say that faith is stronger where there is no evidence, right? So uh, if I believe it, even though there's no evidence at all, then that shows just how strong my faith is. Maybe I have someone else's testimony, but otherwise uh, any sort of scientific evidence is beside the point. But this is a strategy that, uh, in my opinion, reduces God to a kind of manipulative trickster who tests our loyalty by making us act and think opposite to good sense and reason. Uh, so it's no wonder that today we have this breach between reason and faith. Reason operates in history and science where claims are publicly verifiable. You know, faith operates in the subjective, private world of feelings and personal conviction, something like that. I'm sure is uh, familiar to most of us here. Yet the curious thing is that the church itself, I mean, we're gathered here. You can ask our neighbors. We make a public claim because we've rung the peel twice today. Uh, you can uh, thank the administration of uh, President George Bush for that because he changed daylight savings time and so our bells are off. Uh, for two weeks on either uh, end of the year. And so we rang our appeal this morning at uh, just before 9 o'clock and then again at 10 o'clock. So we're making a public statement here. We are gathering in a public place on the corner of Aberdeen and 31st Street. Uh, so there's something public about this. I was looking out last night during the Easter vigil and marveling at how many persons in attendance uh, that I happen to know are adult converts to the Catholic faith or in some cases were even baptized and became Christians as adults. So there was something that convinced these persons to do this. Um, and I don't believe that all of the yearly baptisms and confirmations of so many Catholics at the Easter Vigil can be explained simply by you know, personal feelings without some account of the credibility of the resurrection, a credibility that's rooted in real evidence. Uh, we, all of us here gathered, have a shared experience of an encounter with the risen Christ. And it is from this shared experience that we gather every Sunday or even more frequently. And it's from this shared experience that we can confidently claim that Christ has trampled down death by death. And again, what do I mean by this shared experience? I'd like to start with what is potentially a false start uh, and then reroute the question in today's liturgy. So the first sort of evidence that I think we often are tempted to adduce uh, is the witness of Christian charity to the stranger, to the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, the aged, the disabled. And let me say, this is real evidence. Uh, we Christians should act differently after our baptisms. And if I call it potentially a false start, I use the word potentially to make clear that this type of witness is by no means dispensable. And let me give two great examples of how this works. 
the great 4th century monastic founder Pacomius of Egypt. Uh, He was converted from paganism to Christianity because a group of anonymous Christians uh, came and took care of him and and other uh, army recruits. He had been uh, recruited into the service of the emperor Maximinus uh, during the civil war that would eventually land Constantine on the throne. Uh, And he was so impressed that uh, these people would care for a 21-year-old army recruit like him that he eventually became a Christian and one of the great monks of his time. How about a more contemporary example? St. Josephine Bakita. She was born in Darfur, Sudan, kidnapped at the age of nine by slave traders and subjected to all the cruelty that you can imagine that a slave experiences. Eventually, she was bought by an Italian merchant and brought to Venice. And there she was introduced to a different kind of life, a life informed by Christian charity, to a master who himself took the form of a slave, who was meek and humble of heart. And St. Josephine eventually became not only a Christian, but a Canossian sister and dedicated her life to promoting the missions and to bring the good news of hope to others. So this is a genuine witness, and I don't discount this in any way. But it is, I would contend on this morning, on Easter, it's a second-order witness. The question is, how can we be certain that we aren't just patting ourselves on the back for being kind, that we are really moved by an inner logic, an inner necessity uh, that flows from the resurrection of Christ? goes back to that question. And so I return to the liturgy. Each year, the most astounding thing to me about the Easter liturgy, it it never ceases to amaze me, is the fact that this morning, in the Gospel, in all the readings, Jesus Christ does not appear. Uh, He he appears as an oblique reference by St. Peter in the first reading. In the Gospel, all we have is an empty tomb. And this is evidence, to be sure, but it's ambiguous. Lots of things could happen to produce an empty tomb. At the Office of Lauds this morning, all of the antiphons focus on Christ's absence. You keep hearing, he's not here. He's not here. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? We hear this over and over again throughout the Easter octave. And to the church's doubters, this is, this is obviously an amazing omission. I mean, why wouldn't we say... They all saw him. But it's deliberate, and I'm sure of that, uh, and it receives an interesting confirmation from biblical studies. Most New Testament scholars today believe that the original version of the Gospel of Mark, which is usually assumed to be the earliest gospel, had no account of a resurrection appearance. The earliest manuscripts end with the angel telling Mary Magdalene, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee, you'll see them there. And that's it. It ends. Uh, Here's another important fact to keep in mind. Today's celebration is not just about the resurrection of one man from the dead. Last night, during the blessing of the baptismal font, I pronounced the word baptism, or a related word, seven times. So that's a clue. (laughs) Uh, We're celebrating baptism today, which is to say that Easter is about our resurrection from the dead. It is to us, the baptized, that St. Paul says in the second reading, if you have been raised up with Christ, and you have, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. So our Lord's body is, is here and not here. It's been raised on high, not resuscitated, 
But we too have been raised up in a similar way to a new life, not just a better version of the old life, you know, not just a nicer version of our old selves. It's a completely different life. It's a spiritual life. And a desire to see Christ's body with our bodily eyes would risk being a return to a form of existence that we led before our baptisms, a life in the flesh, not in the spirit. The Holy Spirit gives life, and the life the Spirit gives is a life of faith, a life that elevates our senses uh, to the very reality of things beyond the literal. So we see now not just you know, patterns of measurable reflected light off of our uh, optic nerve, but we see into the reality of things the way God sees things as God intended them to be from the beginning. And we have to learn to see with these spiritual eyes, to listen with the ears of our hearts. Uh, just as a newborn infant gradually improves his sight by exercising it, uh, we refine our spiritual senses by the change we undergo at the liturgy. Christ rises and ascends to the Father so that he may now be everywhere present to those who have faith. And we see this most clearly, you know, again, we're taught this in the liturgical space, in the space where we come together in a church where we put on vestments and do things with incense, etc. So, with the eyes of faith, what's the evidence of the resurrection? The church building is Christ. The Easter candle with its five puncture wounds is Christ. The altar with its five carved crosses, five wounds again, is Christ. The apparent elements of bread and wine are Christ. The priest is Christ. The gospel book is Christ. The assembly, all of us are Christ, together, his body. And it's from this experience of seeing him risen, present, that we are sent forth back into the world to be like John the Baptist and point, point to him. His presence is everywhere out there too. And so for Mary Magdalene, the gardener is Christ. For Clopas, the stranger on the road is Christ. For some anonymous Christians, Pacomius was Christ. Uh, for some other anonymous Christian, the poor frightened slave Josephine Bakita was Christ. Christ is everywhere in this disturbing disguise, but it is through our daily encounter with Christ at the liturgy that his presence becomes discernible for us. Christ, I would say, last of all, is even in hell. He is taking up residence in the place of death within us, dissolving the chains of sin and fear that keep us from the freedom of the sons of God. And so with this gift of baptism, with this gift of new life, let us today thank God and ask the Holy Spirit to give us greater and greater clarity in our eyes of faith.